Welcome to the party, pal. This is the mind-bending film and television podcast you didn't know you needed. It is part of the Osiris Network. Osiris is a growing community of music and culture podcasts, connecting music fans and fans of the art like you with conversation and community. Check out OsirisPod.com for more great podcasts. Today, we will be... Oh, no, no, no. We can introduce each other. I'm Brian Saxon. Uh, I'm here with uh, my co-host, Michael Shields. How's everyone out doing out there? we got a great podcast today. We're, uh, we're, we're going deep, deep out there in the ocean, and we're going to discuss uh, Blue Planet 2. Um, it's the British nature documentary series on marine life produced by BBC. It's, uh, it's naturated by, narrated by naturalist. You see how I can mix those two up. Sir David... Attenborough, and its score is composed by Hans Zimmer. This is a, a show you can now get it on Amazon. Is that the best? I got it on Amazon. I, well. uh, I mean, if you have cable, you could. Pre- it's probably on BBC. Um, it's stunning, an absolutely beautiful, uh, eye-opening piece of work. Um, and to kind of really get into it, um, after me and Brian talk some about it, we have a. Uh, we were able to connect with and uh, have a conversation with one of the cinematographers um, of, of the series, and his name is Roger uh, Horrocks, and he's he's a he's a wildlife cameraman whose whose specialty is uh, to shoot underwater sequences, and he's he's kind of a he's a savant in this way. He's he's, he's at the foreground of the art of shooting underwater, and, and we we got a chance to really dig into. Um, we we talked to him in Cape Town between. We, it was hard to kind of uh, connect with him because he's he's so often out at sea. Yeah, and we were able to finally catch up with him, and uh, it was just you know we talked about some technical aspects and just some of the sequences that that really blew our mind. And so it's a great interview. Um, but before we get into it, I mean, I know this affected you as a diver, as a filmmaker, deeply, Brian. What uh, what what blew you away here? Um. Yeah. No, I loved it. Um. I thought it was. I thought a lot of it. I felt like I was watching a science fiction movie. There was a lot of creatures. Yeah, a bunch of aliens out there, man. It was crazy. Yeah, it was. It was fucking nuts. Um, yeah. <laughs> but uh, and it just it is. That's why it was so cool to get Roger too, because it was. It's so 
remarkable that they're getting these shots. You know, some of them take, uh, he mentions patience. Some of them take so long to actually uh, get the moment that they're trying to get or, or just, uh, just, and I asked about the risk involved. I just, it's such an endeavor to yeah. be shooting in, uh, in this environment. Yeah, they capture a lot of uh, really cool sequences that, I mean, are kind of once-in-a-lifetime opportunities to, to be at the right place. There's yeah. one in episode four that uh, when we talk with Roger, I mean, he was explaining that he was, that was the one where he was out on. Yeah, it's called Big Blue. Uh, yeah, it's, uh, episode four is Big Blue, yep. and there's a uh, the sequence uh, that they refer to as the Boiling Sea, where there's a super pod of 5,000 dolphins, and they're chasing these lanternfish, yeah. and then more like yellowfin tuna come in, these uh, the mobular rays, the sailfish, and it's just this gigantic feeding frenzy. Roger was actually... Trying to capture that the first shows up everything. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But Roger was actually trying to to capture this the first time around, mm-hmm. and they were out and they they missed it. That's how he got. Oh, really? Yeah. yeah. So that's where he he talks about. Uh, oh, the, the turtle shot. The t- the turtle scene. Yeah, that's here. cool. That's something um, that we'll get into in the but, interview. But that all that uh, episode also featured that that whale carcass. Yeah. That they all uh, you know the um, the. The, uh, the blue sharks. Blue sharks came, and then uh, great yeah, whites. Great whites that was just feeding on the blubber. Yeah, <laughs> that was so intense. It was creepy. Yeah, man. I mean, I've never, I've never. Did, wildlife photography is not something that I do. I've yeah. never shot like uh, anything like this. Um, a lot of the stuff that I shoot is way more produced, but yeah. I have been out in nature a lot where you're looking for for animals. I mean, mm-hmm. diving. You're kind. Diving is all about looking for animals mm-hmm. because otherwise you're just seeing water and, and coral. But uh, it's it's one of the things like you're not guaranteed to see anything. So mm-hmm. when they capture these moments, um, it's pretty incredible that they're there to be yeah. able to do it. It's stunning. It's, uh, just and also just the, the the colors down there were the one that the episode that really floored me was the one about coral reefs and. They took you to the coral um, triangle in Southeast Asia, and actually, there were shots that you could see the coral reef forming and coming to life, and just how how th- these metropolises are just like, you know, they, they they some coral reefs can be as big as a house, and just how they form over time. And Is that the one where they had the uh, the time lapse of the the starfish going over the coral that, and just consuming all the sea urchins? Wasn't that? Uh, that was um, or is that in green? That seas? was green seas. Yeah, and the, the yes, those those uh, sea cucumbers were mind blowing. They yeah. were the ones that were fe- one of the uh, creatures that were feeding off the the starfish's um, eggs. But they they would come up. They actually usually just show their heads. But then you get to see their ten arms. Yeah, that, that would actually capture the eggs come by, and then they would put it in their mouth. Yeah, I thought that was such a cool sequence, and. Um, just the colors down there was blowing my mind. It's it's a visual uh, feast. It just it's the si- the series is just out of control. Yeah. Um, and also one thing we do talk about with Roger. It's a question that that we get into later in the interview. Was just kind of they do kind of show what's occurring in the oceans. Um, it, it, that's the effect of uh, of the seas warming, and it's just a. I was taken away by also not just the wonder and beauty and and all that, but also the fragility of some of these. I, I was mentioning the coral reefs. They they do show um, they, their shots of of coral reef down in um, Australia that are actually 
that they, they were showing uh, while they were flourishing, and then they actually show... Bleaching. Bleaching is the term, yes. Yeah, the bleaching of it. Yeah, I mean, the, uh, the, uh, the Great Barrier Reef has already lost... Is it over a third... Yeah, they did. They, uh, they actually. I think. I think it. it, it I, was, I don't want to say a number. I almost thought it was said two thirds, but that seems seems excessive. But it's. I mean, it's. I guess because it causes the the coral polyps to eject their plant life cells, and then the co- the corals lose their color and main source of food, and they can eventually die. And mm. that's that's really intense. Um, so it's killed almost uh, the Great Barrier Reef. Uh, the bleaching has killed almost 25% of the coral. Wow. So it's a fourth, about a fourth. That's intense. Yeah. That but sucks. It, and well, one thing, yes, definitely sucks. But one thing uh, Robert mentions, and try not to give too, way, too much Roger. away from the... Roger. Pardon me, Roger. Uh, is that, um, you know, he also saw the ability for, for so, you know, some of these reefs or, or, you know, things that have been affected negatively to bounce back if 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 we do take care of them and... You know, so that, that, I mean, that gave me a lot of hope thinking about if we, if we do concentrate on, on, you know, what we need to do to, to bring this back, that, that it can come back. That, mm. I was, I was really glad to hear him say that. Right. Um, our, I mean, can we bounce back? Can our planet bounce back from what we're doing right now? I don't, I mean, a lot of people are saying we can't, but there's, I'm, I'm going to believe. And, uh, yes, there is scientific evidence that we've crossed a threshold that's, uh, pretty bad, but, uh. And maybe no turning back, but um, I'm, I mean, what, what, what is there if there isn't hope? And, um, you know, and I think, I, you know, you alluded to it in, this, in the interview, but like, is it shows like this that can open people's eyes to the wonder and the beauty and the need for these things to, uh, to you know, the natural world to, to matter more. Right. And so I think there's a power in these shows in right. that way. Or... People just watch it as entertainment, and then they get stoned. Just get, yeah, and then they just too. go and buy yeah. plastic water bottles. Yeah, yeah. But I, I hope, I hope it is the other way, where, um, where you know people are affected, and maybe even stirred to action. Who knows? But one thing that the show does a great job about are these big moments, these feeding frenzies. We alluded to another. There was another uh, explosion. I think there was in Green Seas too, but uh, uh, this Monterey Monterey Bay explosion of plankton feeders that, um, you know, all these dolphins were converging and all these other things. And it culminated in the arrival of hundreds of humpback whales coming in to get the feed with birds. And everybody's like, it's it's just this wild feeding frenzy. And there's there's multiple moments of that throughout the series that just are flooring. Right, right. Absolutely flooring. So, yeah. Uh, In episode... Two in the deep. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's the there's the sequence. Um, one of my favorite sequences is the sperm whale that sperm whale carcass that falls to the the floor and then is kind of oh, yeah. torn apart by all these six gilled sharks. Yeah. Hey, how about that little tusk fish that goes and gets the clam? Yeah. Know, and then he cracks. He's actually it's it's one of the only examples. And we're we, we're we're enjoying just giving some highlights of this because we really want people to watch this. We think it's important in a lot of ways. But it goes and gets the clam. And it's one of the only examples of a fish using, it uses a piece of coral as a tool. It's one of the only examples of a yeah. fish using it as a tool. And it, it takes a while, but it actually cracks the clam with its mouth on the coral and breaks it open and then gets to eat. And it just, you, you're taking on that whole adventure uh, up until he gets to that point, which was so, so cool. So is that like a, uh, is that fish like of a higher intelligence? I mean, if it's, 
That's like yeah. a, that's I mean that that's like in two thousand one when mm-hmm. after the monolith comes down, the yeah. whole point of the monolith is that it it brings intelligence to the apes, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and then the the famous sequence where the ape starts destroying all the bones with yeah. the with the bone. That's when he figures out how to use tools. That's exactly. what separates us from yeah animals. But there are other animals that use tools. Yeah. I mean, yeah, definitely. There's mammals out there that, that use tools, as far as I know. And uh, right, but. I think maybe it's an example more, you know, it, on par with that is also that some of these creatures are smarter than we ever imagined anyways, you know, in this highlight said, and I mean, I know you've learned a lot of one of the creatures we're both fascinated with is octopus and you get just learning about their intelligence levels and abilities. It's mind blowing. Right. Um, and a, there's this amazing sequence. We t- I think we talked about, uh, multiple times in the interview, um, about this octopus that's 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 being hunted by sharks, and it's uh, the the ways in which it 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 evades them is just flooring. It, it's yeah. I've used the word flooring multiple yeah, times. Yeah, so Ro- Roger shot that sequence, mm-hmm. but um, yeah, it's uh, basically the. I mean, the biggest I think the biggest takeaway from it is that the is at the end whatever sharks are I forget the the names of the sharks that are in the reef at the time that are hunting them which mm-hmm. uh they say they're pound for pound more voracious than great white sharks oh, wow. so they're super super uh predatory mm-hmm. um and there's a sequence where the the octopus kind of like gets caught by the shark and then puts its tentacles in its gills to choke it to, to choke it. it can't breathe and so when he releases it kind of releases the squid and then it, it, squid. Or the, the the ink and then it and then it gets the fuck it out of takes there off, yeah but the other crazy one is when it take the octopus takes uses its tentacles to suck in all these shells and then creates itself makes itself into a ball with shells on the outside of it mm-hmm. so like as a camouflage technique that's fucking out of control. Yeah, it looks so, so cool. It actually has shells lining its whole outside. It's, yeah. It's, re- it's remarkable. It's super trippy. It's super trippy. The whole thing. So Ro- Roger fun. shot that. Yep. Um, and uh, some of the conversation that we have with him, he kind of explains how long he was there. Mm-hmm. I mean, some of the... The, uh, the challenges in, in getting these shots. Yeah, a lot of... We, we geek out on some of the technical aspects of it, some of the camera housing, some of the cameras themselves. The uh, the diving, some of the diving gear. You know what I watched uh, last night is um, Roger has a, a TED Talk, and it's called Camping in Crevices, Camping in, in a Crevice. And um, it's I, I get a little, I ask Roger about his background, and, uh, and you know, I mean, what a cool job. This is, the, this is the, you don't, you don't hear many kids saying, I'm, I'm going to grow up and be a wildlife underwater can- cameraman. Right. Um, but he has background where he did work in the corporate world for, for a while. And, you know, he's got a, I think he, stu- he said he studied law um, and he but he had these experiences that I'll let him talk about that that always connected him with the natural world. And and, and somebody at some point gave him the advice to um, to be the T-boy in the industry you want to be in rather than the CEO of one you don't want to be in. And uh, he just, you know, worked his you should check out this TED talk. He worked his way in to this field and. Uh, it just moved his way up, and now he's one of the premier underwater film uh, cinematographers out there. And so he's 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 very inspiring human being, and 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 he's he's he was, it was awesome to talk to him, and we learned a great deal. And I have no doubt you're going to love this interview. So yeah. should we? Uh, let's get into it. Let's get into it. All right, enjoy this, and um, and thanks for uh, thanks for coming once again to the party. 
great. Well, you know, I, I, I know you get this question all the time, um, and, you know, it's just something I think it will help our listeners just to know a little bit of background of how, you know, a, the, a wildlife cameraman is kind of a unique and amazing job, and uh, I'm just kind of curious how you, how you got into this before we really get into it, because, uh, you know I, know, I know you studied some law, I believe, and, and also you had, you know, were involved in the corporate, uh, corporate world for a stint, so... I'm kind of curious how things got going for you and how you got into this. No, I mean, that's correct. When I was at school, which was um, you know, a pretty long time ago, there was definitely uh, becoming a wildlife cameraman, especially in South Africa. It just wasn't really something that was, um, you know, it just, it just wasn't on the table. Uh, it was kind of either a lawyer, a doctor, or accountant. Yeah. Um, so I kind of, uh, after university, well, finished school, went to university to study law. Mm-hmm. But it was while I was at university that I um, developed a passion for spearfishing um, off the coast of South Africa. And that was just one of the most incredible experiences because we'd go out and, you know, hunt fish and just free diving, um, you know, completely alone and then sort of one with the ocean. So that's really where I developed A, a love of the ocean and mm-hmm. B, what we call field craft, which is, you know, the ability to get close to animals, which when you're an underwater cameraman is obviously quite critical. Um, but, you know, as a lot of my colleagues did, I, I kind of got back into, a, after university, got into a corporate career uh, and worked in digital for about uh, 10 years. Um, and then it was actually while I was doing an, uh, an MBA in Cape Town that I realized that um, as much as I enjoyed the complexity of the corporate world, mm-hmm. um, I really wanted to get back to things that um, that I was really passionate about. And it was just fortuitous that uh, I got a, a job as an assistant through a friend of mine on a BBC production um, for Hugh Pearson called, um, it was on the, on the Sardine Run of South Africa. And that was it. That was my first taste as an underwater camera assistant. And, of course, that's the model, isn't it? You become an apprentice and you do your apprenticeship and then you slowly work your way up. So so that's really how, how it all started. So I was... Uh... You mentioned apprenticeship there. I, I, I believe you worked with Jacques Cousteau's uh, cameraman for a bit. Is that right? Yeah, there have been sort of two cameramen that have been very influential. The first was, um, well, actually three. The first was, Jacques, was Didier Noir, mm-hmm. who was Jacques Cousteau's cameraman um, for about 10 years. Um, and yeah, he taught me a great deal. And then Doug Anderson, who's probably the top uh, um, British underwater camera, or in fact, one of the top cameraman in the world uh so yeah i was really great really fortunate to very early on to work with two of the best underwater camera in the world and, th- and that really kind of sets the the benchmark amazing um i mean so we'll just dive right into into the specifics uh i was really interested in the the technical aspects of of some of the shots um that you guys that you guys uh that you guys got on blue planet two um and, and just getting into it, I mean, this is a, this is an amazing show. I love Planet Earth. I love Planet Earth Two, and I think what you guys did with Blue Planet Two was absolutely incredible. It was super eye opening. Uh, I I'm a I I dive. I'm also a filmmaker as well, and so like the the two the two uh, both of those married marrying together was really impressive. Um, so con- congratulations, basically. Before no, we- thank you. Um, but uh, some of the uh, some of the camera. I wanted to hear about some of the camera systems that you guys were using. There's a there's a couple that uh, that I noticed. Uh, you guys were using probe cameras, these suction mount cameras, these things called ROVs, 
Uh, also yeah. this, this Megadome system that you created. Can you just talk about yeah. like some of the, did you develop any of the technology? Uh, what were the ones that you utilized yourself? Uh, if you could just explain a little bit about, about some of that. Yeah, well, I think just um, before going in, I mean, obviously what one wants to do when you create a series is, is create a distinctive visual world. Mm. Um, and, you know, the difficulty in the, in the natural world is that you can't direct your subjects. They, you know, often the, the things you're filming are incredibly fleeting. So you tend to, in some of the instances, you kind of snatch what you can get. But as, as the natural history kind of um, tradition has evolved, it, it, you know, it certainly has... Um, aspired to become more and more cinematic in the classic kind of sense of that word. So um, one of the key things that you can do to differentiate your your visual language and to create a distinctive grammar is obviously to use, you know, different tools. Um, The Megadome, for example, really enables you to displace more water so you can essentially see more above and below. Um, and, And again, that was used, you know, quite effectively in very specific instances to, to, to kind of create a distinctive, you know, feel where it was appropriate. Um, I think the standard camera that we all use pretty much was the red, uh, the red dragon. Mm-hmm. Um, that was the kind of, I mean, it's a great camera, um, incredible dynamic range. Uh, it's got great pre-record capabilities, which is critical for wildlife filming. And that's kind of become the default tool, um, in many ways, and it's also got a dedicated H2O sensor, which which absolutely makes a difference in terms of the color rendering. Mm-hmm. Um, so that that was kind of the, the default. But then, as you say, there were some specialist cameras developed, the the suction cams, which gave the kind of POV of the animal, um, which was used quite successfully. I think most successfully with the orca. Yeah, the the orca um, sequence was pretty incredible. Yeah. Yeah, really, really strong. And then there was um, it was also for the coral reef program. The producer. Uh, Jonathan Smith um, developed a probe camera system. So I don't know if you remember in the Coral Reef program, some of the opening shots, you kind of just see this this push in and it goes right inside the coral. Um, And that was done with a, that was an A7S uh, with an Atmos uh, external recorder and then with a probe kind of relay lens um, on a, I think it was a Nikkor 100mm macro lens. Right. So, you know, that again really enabled you. And, of course, his vision was to kind of do like a cityscape um, feel within the context of the coral because coral reefs really are, are that. They're kind of marine cities. Metropolis, um, of course, yeah. Metropolis, yeah. exactly. Yeah. So, so yeah, we used those cameras and we used that camera on the, on the octopus sequence to kind of really get a lowdown and also to give that sense of intimidation, you know, that the, that the octopus must feel when these predators are kind of looming around. What? Um, what um uh, so like when you build out these rigs with the like if you use the a7s which is a pretty small camera body do you have to like build out the housing depending on what types of lenses you guys are using because there isn't is or is there a standard kind of housings that come with them no i mean we were using um i mean generally using the you know combination of gates and nordicam housings for the reds but for the a7s it was the nordicam housing nordicam have really um kind of come to the fore in terms of you know the the housings that they're producing um so that was all in a nordicam system and then yeah there was a degree of customization to you know make sure that the the rig was solid but it's quite a specialized shot you you you're generally not moving too much with that kind of setup so 
um, you know, it's it's easier to to keep it steady. And of course, the big advantage with you know, again, with the modern cameras is you can shoot at higher frame rates, which again allows you to, um, you know, steady, steady the image somewhat. Right, right. Um, how, how much, uh, I mean, since we're geeking out about gear, <laughs> talk about uh, your diving gear as well. I mean, are you guys using, were you getting super deep on a lot of this? Uh, I mean, obviously the coral, that was probably in shallower waters, but uh, were you using nitrox for these dives or... I think I think there was a combination. I mean, the one thing with with underwater, which is just sort of so increasingly clear to me, you know, is that the the real the beauty is really in the top sort of five meters, you know, five ten meters. That's when your your color and your clarity. I mean, I'm not talking about the deep where you're in a submarine, which is right. a different thing. Right. But generally, you know, we we still we don't we very rarely work. Um, on a series like this, very really work deeper than thirty meters, mm-hmm. um, because, simply because of the, the you know the color loss down at that depth. Um, but no, we do use. Um, I mean, we all pretty much are, all the guys are rebreather qualified. Um, and the wonderful thing with the rebreathers is they you can use you can use helium. Um, you can obviously go extremely deep. But the critical thing is is they minimize the bubbles. There's no there's no noise signature at all. And you know you can stay down for six hours. Oh wow. Um, yeah. and you can communicate, it seems like you can communicate with, uh, with the, the ship above. It depends. Normally, um, it depends on the context and where you are, but there are, we can use, yeah, we can utilize, we generally use a Kirby Morgan 48, which is like a, it's a full face mask, but it's kind of split mask. So you've got the normal mask thing with like a pod, um, and that you can run underwater comms. So you can talk to the diver. You can talk to your assistant if they're doing grip work or they're doing lighting for you. Um, and then, yes, in, in certain circumstances where you need it, you can actually communicate with um, with the vessel. Hmm. Hmm. That's fascinating. That's crazy. Um, yeah. Well, I, I had a question about um, story in, uh, in that way. Uh, I know many a times when you, you get these amazing shots, uh, for instance, the um, – the full moon that causes the spawning of the coral. That I mean, that would just that just blew yeah. my mind. But I mean, so in that instance, I'm assuming you know exactly what you know what's happening there. You go down to get that shot. Um, sure. But sometimes when you're down there, you must also come upon things that are just that just you know kind of develop the story as you're going along. Maybe that instance with the log that you spoke of with the turtle. Is something that is that something that you came upon? Does it happen when you're down there that you go down for some story, some purpose, and you come out with this aha moment of, of wow, we have to tell this story that I just came upon? Yeah, I mean, I, I, you know, there's there's increasingly the the uh, production teams, and they obviously play a critical part in in the story. Mm-hmm. Um, for example, the dolphin, uh, the Wagoning dolphin sequence. I mean, I literally had a storyboard that had been written by a professional storyboard artist, um, with a complete breakdown of how the producer envisaged the mm-hmm. scene actually unfolding. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in that case, you know, I was able to go out there, use that as a reference, and pretty much deliver on. On almost every every um, frame that he'd kind of envisaged, but certainly, and, and you mentioned the log. I mean, that was completely unintended. We'd actually gone out to the um, the Coral Sea off Australia, the Great Barrier Reef, 
to film a boiling sea event, which mm-hmm. is where the mactophids and the lanternfish get driven to the surface. And it just it didn't happen. We were on the Aleutia, yeah. and um, I saw this log floating, and I mentioned to the producer, let's get in and have a look. And, yeah, I literally only had about an hour on it, on the, on the log, to do the coverage. And we then had to ship off to get into position for the subs. But, you know, that then became, with that material, we were able to then do a second pickup shoot and shoot more material to flesh out the sequence. So yeah. you, you did right. It's a combination of, of planning and then mm-hmm. serendipity. Oh, that's yeah. fantastic. And yeah, and then you probably figured that you would follow the turtle out to sea to kind of get his journey and complete that tale. That's so cool. Um, yeah, one of, uh, one of the other... Um, Notable sequences that you shot was the uh, was a lot of the octopus footage, which is yeah. pretty incredible. There's uh, in particular, I thought when the uh, when the octopus shields itself with all the with all the shells creates a, sure. creates an armor. Is was this something that like biologist marine biologists have seen this sort of behavior before, or is this something that you guys just captured? Because I mean, you know, well, it. it, it it was a cool story. It was actually, um, you know, octopus have been, octopi have been documented, Doctors Volgaris, which is the common octopus, have been documented, um, you know, doing a variety of things. There's a, an octopus species in Indonesia that uses a coconut shell as a kind of home, as a defense, carries it around with it. But <laughs> no one had ever witnessed um, this behavior until Craig Foster, who's a, a friend of mine um, and a kind of local naturalist, he actually observed it uh, for the first time in the wild. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, we were in collaboration as cameramen. We, we often bring stories to the production because they then generally, you know, put you on to that to deliver it. So um, I'd been looking for a, a, a kind of a, um, you know, a kelp story for a while. And when Craig mentioned this to me, I knew that it would would make a compelling you know sequence, but what I didn't know was quite how we were going to capture it and how long it was actually going to take us. Mm-hmm. Um, so what we did in this instance, and because the the conditions in the Cape where I where I live are so variable, I negotiated to do it over a two year period, um, and it actually took us about seventy days to complete that sequence. Wow. That's crazy. Um, wow. Yeah, that's insane. Um, where where else did you travel to for for the for the series? Well, for this series, I did. Uh, it was obviously Australia. We went and um, that's where I shot that log sequence, and then the Red Sea, which was the where with two dolphin sequences, um, and 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 then obviously Cape Town. So essentially, it was just those those three locations. Right. Right. I was thinking a lot, and um, I'm not a diver like uh, both you guys, and so uh, there's a certain level of uh, uh, fear I have towards towards that great big blue out there. But, um, you know, there must be so many, you know, not only just the wildlife. So I'm looking at these amazing shots of all these gigantic swells and everything. What are some of the biggest risks that are, you know, kind of challenges that you guys have when you're out there shooting? It's, it's, it's quite an endeavor. It just blows my mind a little bit. Yeah, no, it's it's a it's an interesting one, and I mean the um, I think what I think people do appreciate it from the making of uh, programs, those those little vignettes around how the things were made. But yeah. the reality of of open water, we generally there's two dimensions. There's the what we call the open water, blue water shoots, which is where you're looking for bait balls. Um, 
I'll give you an example. I was on a recent shoot for um, for a Netflix, the, the next big Netflix um, series that's coming out in 2019. Mm-hmm. And uh, we spent 250 hours at sea, uh, so 10 hours a day uh, mm-hmm. on, a, on, a, on a rib, um, doing a lot of mileage looking for balls. And I was filming for, I was on a ball. The ball that we got lasted eight minutes. Oh. What, what, uh, what do you mean the, the ball? Oh, so the bait ball. So the actual, um, the, the actual event, which is a feeding event. With, oh, right, right, right. Okay. Uh, yeah, so that actually lasted. So it's just, it's just quite astounding. You know, the, the, and I often sort of describe it as more of a meditation. You know, you mm-hmm. spend a lot of time looking and just being absolutely patient for that moment, um, which, which defines the shoot. Um, so, so that's kind of an open water and then the, what we call benthic work which is more like the octopus sequence often you're using grip you're using um, tripods underwater uh, you've got a, you know you've got a rebreather and that you can spend actually a huge amount of time underwater observing waiting filming mm-hmm. um, you know up to six hours a day depending on the location right. um, but those are you know I think that's that's the patience that's the critical thing the mm-hmm. risks you know, I think um, rebreathers are probably, you know, quite dangerous. Um, you know, one really has to be careful on them. Yep. But I don't think, uh, you know, there's no colleagues that I know of, apart from Steve Irwin, and that was a different scenario, mm-hmm. uh, that have actually been killed by any of the animals that they're filming. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah, that's, you know, that's certainly an encouraging stat. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. No, no question. Yeah, shark, sharks, uh, when you're diving around sharks, sharks tend to kind of leave you alone. Not, uh... Yeah, yeah, they, they, they do tend to, and they, um, I mean, the, the, some of it, again, if there's a feeding event, they can get quite aggressive, and I've certainly seen some close calls where sharks have got very aggressive, but um, as long as you calm and you engage them and you, you know, you're assertive, it, it definitely optimizes or minimizes the risks of, of getting bitten, and, and I, you know, I don't think it's a, um, a radical, you know, I don't think the risk is, is exceptional. Right. Um, You didn't shoot any of the the deep sequence, but uh, I just wanted to hear your thoughts on it Um, because I thought uh, a lot of the the footage that they captured in Blue Planet uh, for the deep, I I feel like I was watching a science fiction movie. Um, I thought that, I mean, some of the the creatures that they found – Miles below the surface of the the water were incredible. Did, okay, what what did you think about some of the footage that they got? No, I mean I agree with you. It's uh, it's I think the the otherness of that world is incredibly you know incredibly compelling. I mean I remember um, you know seeing some of the rough cuts, some of the raw material, and and just completely forgetting about time. You know watching just raw footage for like thirty forty minutes and just being completely absorbed in it simply because it's so kind of alien and other. It really has a otherworldly quality to it. So, yeah, I thought they did a, you know, a really good job of, of representing that world. Right. Do you, do you think, uh, I mean, I'm not in the science community, but do you think a show, the, like series like these and like series like Planet Earth, do you think it, it results in, in more funding towards science scientists doing their thing out in the wild just because you it I, I feel like with with shows like the ones that you work on i mean you're really it, it is contributing to science way more than than people think i would guess right well i'm 
not sure. I mean, ultimately, these programs are they are classified as entertainment. So, right. you know, they, you know, and certainly that is our mandate. You know, the mandate, certainly, you know, working for the BBC is to entertain um, and educate the, 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 the British public. I think what increasingly, I mean, there's no doubt that these series engage people and connect them to a natural world that, that most people, unfortunately, don't have access to. So I think that that certainly is a is a critical role but the other thing which um i think blue planet 2 specifically was very successful at doing was that it brought in environmental issues in a way which weren't too kind of in your face to to sort of completely turn people off but you know there was a sufficient sufficient messaging for example around plastic yeah um in the open ocean, and that has been, you know, that is now translated into um, legislation in the UK banning plastic. The Queen of England has got behind it. Mm. Um, so there's no doubt that there's, you know, an opportunity with with a series of this kind of magnitude to bring, you know, one clear environmental message through, and then to actually get results. Yeah. Also, uh, in the two of the episodes you worked on, there's, um, you know, they do to close the episodes discuss about the. The concerns of uh, you know the the seas warming and you know that's sure. something that was brought sure. home with uh, the, that, yeah. that intense scene with the um, uh, the, the, the mothers of the, uh, of the I think it was a pilot whale. The, um, what am I thinking? The, ba- the baby. Whale they're trying to find some ice for them to actually. Oh right, the the walrus. Uh, the yeah. walrus. Yeah. yeah, that yeah. was brought home in that way, and then um, exactly. Exactly. Uh, yeah, and just yeah. I mean, is and also oh, the coral reefs uh, dying out in Australia. The yeah, the coral bleaching. Yeah, and so yeah, the bleaching exactly. So you you're obviously seeing evidence of of what this warming of the waters is is really, you know, its detrimental effects um, firsthand. Yeah, I mean, it's it's obviously happening in specific areas, and that's the thing with you know global warming is that it creates extremes. So it's not always you know like everything is getting hotter, some things are getting colder, and the whole kind of systemic balance is is being disturbed. But yeah, you know, there's no doubt that um, you know we do we do witness. We go back to places, and you just you see you you know you, you can't necessarily. Um, give you know all the accurate scientific statistics which would make mm-hmm. it scientific, but you can just see that there's been you know a degradation. But again, you know the encouraging thing is you go to places that have been protected, and it's just astounding how quickly the marine life bounces back and, oh, cool. and flourishes. So you know I think I think you know there's yeah there's you know there's there's there's, there's obviously a sense of desperation around. Uh, policies and, and the impact of, of humans on, on the ocean. But there's also the sense of, look, you know, we can actually do something about it if the will, if the will is there. Yeah, there's hope. It's also a hopeful message, absolutely. Sure. Uh, is there anything you could tell us about Our Planet, that the Netflix show? I'm, I'm excited about that. I, this, this thing blew me away, and I'm looking for more. No, I mean, it's, it's obviously all kind of confidential and under yep. wraps, but um, Netflix I... have, yeah, they've, <laughs> they've, the they've basically announced a, um, they've been working on it. It's an eight-part um, series produced by the same uh, people that, that actually did Blue Planet One and Planet mm-hmm. Earth. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it will, you know, very much explore, um, you know, the, the state of the natural world. And there's a big tie-in with WWF, and that's planning to premiere on Netflix around the world on the. I think it's. I think it's. I think it's some somewhere April next year. Oh, cool! That's cool. Awesome. Yeah. Um, where? So then, where are you off to next? 
in the world to continue filming because you you're based out of out of Cape Town and you're in, you're in Cape Town now. Correct. Yeah, I'm in, I'm in Cape Town now. I've actually just got back from um, yeah, I just got back from Zimbabwe. I had a shoot up there with elephants. Um, oh, and so, I'm you, heading- so you so you shoot more. What would you say the uh, the the uh, the balance is between shooting underwater and and out on dry no, land? No, that was elephants and the elephants underwater. Oh wow! Yeah, yeah. that's yeah. crazy. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that was elephants underwater, and then yeah, I've got a few projects, um, local projects, which I've been uh, I've been away so much. I'm trying to uh, spend a bit of time at home, so I've got a project again, possibly for Netflix, which I'll be running out of Cape Town for for a while. So, kind of hoping to to spend some time here, and then potentially uh, shoot in Madagascar will oh. be the next one off offshore so yeah i know there's there's you know and it's really really interesting there definitely seems to have been a you know there's there, there's definitely an interest in in the natural world so you know i'm hoping that the success of blue planet too because it was massive in the states not so much but certainly in china that was the interesting thing i don't know if you saw those stats but there was like yeah. 200 million downloads oh my really? god that's encouraging. Yeah. That's, wow, that's amazing. Which is is pretty pretty astounding. Yeah. Um, so yeah, there's you know there's there's I think there's a lot of work to be done, and um, yeah, I'm really excited about you know the potential of, of capturing you know the and that's the that's the crux as, as an underwater cinematographer is really doing justice to these animals mm-hmm. you know in, in the hope that people will connect with them and relate to them, and I think Blue Planet Two did a great job. In, in, in that regard right yeah, it, did, it did an amazing job absolutely and, and that's why we're, we're thrilled to spread the word I mean it definitely it affected us deeply and yeah I, I, oh, I, I, I could feel like the residence wasn't as, as large as it should have been uh, on this side of the pond so it's, it's something yeah. we're, we're thrilled to talk about yeah. here and learn yeah. more about so no, brilliant! I really, yeah, really appreciate that from from our side. Yeah, awesome. did you did you work on that the uh, the new series Dynasty, the one that's uh, that BBC is doing at all? No, there's a potential. Uh, is that no? Didn't no that one I haven't worked on. Um, I've been quite busy with. Um, uh, a Disney film which is coming out next year. Is that actually, dolphins yeah, it's as well? actually coming out this year. Yes, correct. The yeah, dolphins, Disney yep. Dolphins. Yep. Um, so I've been pretty tied up on that <laughs> for the last uh, two years, yeah. along with with Blue Planet. Um, but yeah, it's it's really been that, and then the Netflix series that I've been you know very much tied up with. Um, how is it interacting with dolphins in the wild? I mean, they're considered the smartest. Smartest animals on the planet. Yeah, it's other fun than to watch them humans. actually actually having fun out there as well. They seem to enjoy themselves. And, and, and no, they are. I mean, they, they, you know, they, they, they spend a lot of time with bottlenose dolphins. Um, and no, I mean, they, there's no doubt that they have no issue with um, you know hunting. Food is not a problem for them, so they're not continually trying to feed, or you know, that's not really the issue. Mm-hmm. And with their massive brain capacity uh, and being a social group, I mean, the the degree of social interaction, the intelligence, um, and also the characterization, it's very becomes very apparent very quickly that each one, each dolphin has a as you get to know them because you start to identify different dolphins. Yeah, they have completely different personalities. Some are friendly, some like to play, some are always grumpy. Um, so, yeah, it was you know, an amazing experience to spend spend all of that time with them. That's cool, man. Absolutely. Well, Roger, thank you. This was this was eye opening. Uh, your work is extraordinary. Not only does it no, highlight the uh, 
the wonder and the beauty of the natural world, but also its fragility in a lot of ways. And I mean, as you sure. can tell, we were completely floored and we thank you for taking the time and, and, and kind of uh, walking us through this. No, I really appreciate um, I really appreciate it. It's great to chat to you guys. Thanks very much. Yeah, thanks, thanks a lot, man. Um, good luck with uh, all your endeavors moving forward. No, thank you very much. All right, talk to you appreciate soon, Appreciate it. Man. You guys too. All okay. right. Thanks, thanks, Roger. Thanks so much. Osiris. This podcast is in the loop, the Legion of Osiris podcasts. What does that mean? Osiris is a community of great music and culture podcasts. If you like this one, go check out others at osirispod.com and get in the loop. Osiris is partnered with Relics Magazine at relics.com. Are you a pathetic and worthless man?